Let's open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter number 10. This morning, Joshua, chapter number 10. What a blessing it is to be with you here in the house of the Lord. Amen. I'm excited to see each and every one of your smiling faces. And if you say, preacher, I'm not smiling, well, don't tell me. All right. I'd just rather stay encouraged. believe everybody's smiling this morning. If uh, some of our VBS workers are not smiling, I'll give them a little grace. They may not have the energy to smile after this past week. Praise the Lord for Great Vacation Bible School. I'm thankful for what God did this past week. We had four young people make professions of faith, uh, including my oldest son, Lawrence. Amen. So we're excited about that, and uh, I appreciate all the hard work. I told somebody on Friday night, I was watching all of the carnival stuff going on and uh, watching... You know, all of our church people excited and laboring and, and working hard and, and, you know, it's, it's just a carnival and I know that. I, I'm not saying the carnival night's the most spiritual thing we do around here. Uh, I hope it's not, but I, I, you know, I looked at a bunch of people serving sacrificially, selfishly, selfish, I'll get it said in a second, selflessly and enthusiastically. People excited about being there. And I've got to say, I mean, when I think back over my time at Wall Ridge Baptist Church, I think of some days that I'm proud of. And Friday night was one of the big ones. I mean, I'm proud of the way our uh, our people worked and labored and their zeal and enthusiasm, not just in what they were doing, but for the Lord. And I appreciate your faithfulness this week. Certainly it could not take place. And I believe Brother Kerry would probably echo this with me, uh, that me and him, in as much as we sort of work with Vacation Bible School, we know it couldn't happen without God's people laboring together, coming together, serving the Lord. It's not easy, amen? It's it's the work of the Lord. Somebody say amen there. It is work sometimes, but boy, it sure is rewarding to be a fellow laborer with the Lord. All right, Joshua chapter number 10 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. This is, to me, one of the most astounding portions of the Word of God. And there is a phrase that I want to pick up on this morning. If I can, if it's all right, I want to use this to preach to you about Jesus this morning. Joshua chapter number 10, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, So he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hohem, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Yarmouth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, uh, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. The men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Notice verse 14. The Bible says there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought 
for Israel. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in your house this morning with your people. I thank you, Lord, publicly and, and profusely for what this past week has been and has meant and has accomplished. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people. I thank you, Lord, for the faithfulness of you in ministering and working in our hearts this week as well of the, as the hearts of the young people. I pray that the work that has been accomplished in their hearts and lives would redound unto your glory and would persist in its development. Lord, that these young people would just keep growing deeper in their faith, that they would keep growing higher in their trust in You. And Lord, that You would get much glory out of their lives. Now, I pray that You'd take the Word of God this morning. It is Your book. It is Your Word. It is the sword of Your Spirit. And Father, that You would wield it in our hearts and minds. May we look at this passage and see Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. And may He be glorified. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. I'm fascinated by what the Bible says in verse number 14. The Bible says, "...of this day and the great victory that the Lord wrought for Israel in the land, that there was no day like that." Now, that's a big deal to say that. There's no day like that. I've had some good days. I've had some bad days. But there's been very few, Brother Charlie, that I'd have to say I have never had a day like that. But then it goes even a little further. It doesn't just say there was no day like that. It says there was no day like that before it. You could go back throughout all of the annals of human history. You could go back to the time when time began. And you wouldn't find a day that was like that day that God hearkened unto Joshua. But then it doesn't just stop there. It goes a little further. It says there was no day like that before it. Then it says there was no day like that after it as well. Now, it's one thing to say, hey, I've never had a day like this. Uh, but how many of you have learned in your short sojourn on this earth that you never say never? Anybody learn that? Uh, don't ever say it can't get no worse. Because it sure enough will get worse. <laughs> and and, and I, it's one thing to say I've never had a day like that. It's one thing to say there's never, uh, there, there never before has there been a day like that. But the Bible says that after it there was never a day like it either. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, and this is just the way I think of things, when I read my Bible, it doesn't matter what portion of the Bible I'm reading about, I always try to think of it in terms of Calvary. And here's what I want to try to do this morning. I want us to see Jesus in Joshua. I want us to see in the battle that was fought, the victory that was won on Calvary. Because, Brother Ken, here's what I think. There was never a day like it. There was never a day before it or a day after it that was identical to it when God hearkened unto a man in that way. But I do believe there was one day that was greater than that day in what was done and accomplished and in how God listened to the voice of a man and answered his prayer. So when we walk through this passage, I think the first thing I have, I feel this way, I don't know if you ever pick up on it, but when we preach typology, pictures in the Bible, I mean looking in the Old Testament and seeing a picture of Jesus, I'm not saying that Joshua was Jesus, I'm not saying they weren't two distinct individuals, but I'm just saying when I, when I look at Joshua, I can see Jesus and I can, I can make a comparison there. When I preach types in the Bible, but Charlie, I don't know, I just kind of feel like it's my responsibility to prove it to you. I feel like I need to show you why I think this is a picture of Jesus. Because anybody can say anything. I mean, anybody can say, this person's a picture of that person, this and that. So let's consider some things that remind us about Jesus here. The first thing I think about, I mean, and this may be really simple to you. I don't know. I'm kind of a simple preacher. Uh, but the first thing I think about is His name reminds me of Jesus. Now you say, preacher, why is that? Well, because what Joshua was in Hebrew, Brother Kim, Jesus was in Greek. In fact, their names are identical as far as their definition, and they share a common etymology. In fact, if you had lived in the land of Israel, you would have heard them look at Joshua and call him Yeshua. And if you had looked, lived in the land of Israel in the days of Jesus, they would have looked at him and they would have called him Yeshua. They were the same names. The name means Jehovah is salvation. In fact, over in Hebrews chapter 4, you don't have to turn there if you don't want, but in Hebrews chapter 4, the Hebrews writer calls Joshua Jesus. 
And you say, why would he do that? Because he's writing with a, with a Greek pen. He's writing in the Greek language. And as such, he just called Joshua what any Greek person would have called him. They would have spelled it out and called him Jesus. And he calls Joshua by the name Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, you may say that's an accident. I say there are no accidents. You may say that's a coincidence. I said, I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in providence. And I just can't help but think there's none other name given among men whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And if I read in my Bible another man by the same name, there must be a connection. In fact, there are a few people in the Bible by the name of Joshua. There was a high priest in Israel. There was Joshua, the man that we read about tonight. And then, of course, Jesus in the New Testament. So I think even his name gives us a little hint. But then when I read in this passage, there's some other things. I made a list of them. Let me share them with you. The first thing about Joshua, other than his name, that reminds me of Jesus, I think of Joshua and he reminds me of Jesus because of, number one, his allies. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, if you read this passage, you first off probably noticed a place by the name of Gibeon. And the people that lived there for the kin were called Gibeonites. Now this is not the first time we have been introduced to the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua. If you were to go further back in the book of Joshua, you would find out that Gibeonites are Canaanite people. They're Gentiles. They don't know God. They don't know the, the God of Israel. They're part of the people that Joshua is supposed to conquer. And they devise a way, Brother Charlie, to deceive Joshua into giving them peace. They go and they get a couple of their men and they have them put on ragged old clothes and they have them carry moldy bread with them and they have them carry their their water skins, their water bottles were all old and dry and cracked. And They get some animals, some pack animals that were worn out and they, they ride these pack animals to the camp of Joshua at Gilgal and they tell him, we're not from around here, we're from a far distance and we've traveled here because we've heard of your greatness and we wondered if we could make a peace alliance with you. Joshua, unbeknownst to him, these people are his next-door neighbors, and in fact, some of the people, he's got a list of who he's going to conquer, and they're on it. But he doesn't know that. So here's what he does. He says, well, I believe you. I hear what you're saying. I can see your old shoes. I can see your old clothes. I can tell your animal is worn out. So I promise you that the Israelites will not destroy you or your people wherever they are. About that time, the Gibeonites threw down that moldy bread and said, well, Joshua, it's good to hear that, because in fact, we live right next door. And Joshua now was bound, Brother Ken, to pardon them and protect them because he had made that promise to them. Now you say, preacher, that don't sound very upright and that don't sound very honest. In fact, that sounds like kind of a messy way uh, for, for, you know, uh, diplomatic relations. And it is indeed. But can I tell you something? There are some, not everything, but there are some things about that that remind me of what Jesus did when He came to die for sinners. You say, what do you mean? Well, number one, the first thing I notice is their nature. They were undeserving Gentiles. You know why they had to come and deceive Him? Now, let me say unequivocally, Jesus has never been deceived. Not by anything. Not by you or me. But the reason they had to get Joshua's protection this way, listen now, is because they didn't deserve Joshua's protection in the first place. They came to him this way because they knew they were the enemies of Joshua. And they came and they begged him and they pleaded with him, listen now, and they trusted to his mercy because they had no part in him. Boy, that reminds me of how the lost sinner comes to the Lord Jesus. We come to Him and we don't, He don't owe us anything. He doesn't have to save us, at least not on our account, but He does. You know how He saves us? He saves us by grace. So they remind me sort of lost sinners because, number one, they were, they were sinners indeed. They didn't know God. They had no part in God. They were sly. They were not upright people. They were not morally just people. And they, were, they became, because of this, servants of Joshua. So they come to Joshua and say, this is uh, you know, who we are, and they deceive him. And Joshua says, all right, I will pardon you. Then when he finds out, Brother Ken, that they are who, who they had pretended not to be, when he finds out who they really are, here's what he says. All right, I'm going to pardon you, but now you're going to be my servant. And the rest of your days, you will enjoy my protection, you will enjoy my provision, you will enjoy being a part of the household of Joshua, but you're going to have to be a servant for the rest of your days. Man, that reminds me of what it's like to be a Christian. Uh, listen, I mean, I understand I'm a son of God. I understand I'm a saint of the Most High. But you better mark her down, friend, until you get it in your head that you and I, we are also servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were sinners that didn't deserve to be saved. We didn't have any part in Him. We couldn't come and claim any part in Him. We were undeserving Gentiles that deserved to die in our sin. But because of His mercy, because of His grace, we have been brought into the family of God and 
And now we are servants of the Most High God. So their nature reminds me, but not only that, their name, the name Gibeon, you know what it means? It means hill city. Hill city. A city of hills. And I, I don't know, you may think this is, this is sort of a, a thin, but I just thought about Matthew 5.14. I remember when Jesus was talking about being salt of the earth and being the light of the world. And then He looked at His followers and He said this, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Now, what was he talking about, Brother Ken? He's talking about the New Testament church. He's talking about believers in this dispensation of grace that we were not to be hid away, but that we were to be a city set on a hill. You know what the Gibeonites were? They were an example of Joshua's grace. Everybody said, we know. Uh, people may say, Joshua, he's a mean fellow, but we know he's not because look how he spared the Gibeonites. And then I thought about their nearness. They had a relationship with Joshua. It was brought on, number one, by Joshua's pity. I'm not going to get into this too much. We ain't got time enough, but suffice it to say, you know why we're close to the Lord Jesus Christ? Because of His pity, because of His mercy, because of His grace, because He loved us. You know, I like the way the book of Ephesians uh, talks about it. Because of His great love wherewith He loved us. We've been made accepted, or I guess John spoke about it, we've been made accepted into the Beloved. So it was brought on by pity, but now listen, it was also based on Joshua's promise. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, Joshua had given his word to the Gibeonites. That's why they felt comfortable after Joshua had promised coming out and saying, oh, by the way, we've deceived you and we're your next door neighbors and you're supposed to kill us, but you can't now. You know why they would do that? Because they knew Joshua was a man of his word. They knew Joshua would never go back on the covenant and promise that he made. Their safety, listen now, their safety was based on the word and promise of Joshua. Now, boy, I don't know about you, but that reminds me of what it is to be a New Testament Christian. You know why I know I'm saved? Not because I'm a good person. If you knew me like God knows me, if you knew me like my wife knows me, you'd say, preacher, if anybody ought not make it, it's you. And that's probably true. It's not because I'm a good person. It's certainly not because I'm a Baptist preacher. Sometimes I wonder if that counts against you. You know why I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? One simple reason. The Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And God keeps His promises. And as a ten-year-old boy, I called on the name of the Lord. And I believe God keeps His promises. We could spend a lot of time just plowing that ground. The Hebrews writer talks about those immutable, uh, those promises of God and that God, when He could swear by no greater, He swore by Himself that by two immutable things. Immutable means unchangeable. Two things that don't change. God made a promise to Himself, and in that promise to Himself, He said, if you'll believe on Me, I'll save you. And we are, as New Testament believes, we are counting on God's promise to get us there. He never breaks His Word. So their nearness sort of reminds me. And then their need reminds me. You know what they needed? They say this to Him. I don't have it referenced down here. We could look through and, and probably find precisely what they ask. In verse 6, the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly. And notice these next three words. And save us. You know what they needed? They needed a Savior. They didn't need a, 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 a diplomatic entourage. They didn't need economic relief. You know what they needed? They needed a Savior. And that sort of reminds me of Jesus' relationship with lost sinners. You know what we really need in our life? I mean, there may be a lot of things we want. There may be a lot of things that might improve our, our temporal circumstances. But at the end of the day, every person born in this world, their greatest need, they need a Savior. They need someone to forgive them of their sins as regards them and God, and they need someone to redeem them from their lost condition. So his allies remind me of Jesus. Then number two, his adversaries sort of remind me of Jesus. The Bible says in verse number five, and and it gives a list. Let's just read through them real quick. Who are these kings? Or we'll go back to verse number three and we'll read them there because it gives their names distinctly. Who are these kings that line up against Joshua? It says, Wherefore Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hohem, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Yarmouth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon. Now, all of these men were kings of Amorite kingdoms. And now, I want you to listen carefully. You need to get this. You listen. These men were the reason Joshua was in Beth Horon that day. These men were the reason that Joshua was brought from Gilgal to Beth Horon. These are the reason he was standing there and prayed the prayer that he prayed. Now, all these men did this because they were adversaries of Joshua. But you know, when I look at their names, it sort of reminds me, listen now, of the things that brought Jesus to Calvary. Now, not all these are enemies of Jesus, but these are the reasons He came 
to Calvary. For instance, the first thing I see is the king of Jerusalem, and his name is Adonai Zedek. Now, here's what that means. It means Lord of Righteousness. Now, you know what I find interesting, though? It says Lord of Righteousness, and that's his name, and that's what the people that knew him called him. That was a title more than anything, and kings of Jerusalem would uh, would put that name Zedek as regarded righteousness, like Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or the king of Jerusalem. So they would put that name, that name righteousness, but it was just a name. Melchizedek was a righteous man, but I don't think this man was. So how do you know that? Well, he's an Amorite and he's a worshiper of Amorite gods. So here's what I find. He calls himself a Lord of righteousness, but he is a pretender of righteousness. He's not really a righteous man. And you know, that reminds me sort of of the devil. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Corinth said that the devil could make his, uh, his uh, servants, his ministers, uh, to appear as angels of light. The devil wants you to believe that he is right. The devil wants you to believe he is righteous. And he, what was the first thing he did in the Garden of Eden? He sold a false righteousness to Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil, a false sense of righteousness. But we know the devil's not righteous, is he? He is a pretender to righteousness. And it reminds me that one of the reasons Jesus went to Calvary was to deal with the devil. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, talking about Jesus, that through death, listen now, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know one of the reasons Jesus went to Calvary? To deal with the devil once and for all. You remember the first messianic promise given in Genesis chapter number 3 about the seed of the woman? It says of that woman that, uh, that, that, uh, that the uh, seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It said that the serpent would bruise his heel, but that he would bruise or crush that serpent's head. That's what happened at Calvary. The heel of the Lord Jesus was bruised. He suffered physical harm and physical pain and His body was slain. But thank God He rose again the third day. Amen. It was just a flesh wound, nothing more. But the devil was defeated on that day. So I think about the devil. And then there's a king named Hohum. How would you like that for a name? Hohum. And Hohum means whom Jehovah provokes. In other words, somebody that, that Jehovah, the God of Israel, somebody that He deals with or somebody He wrestles with, somebody He provokes. And I'll tell you who that makes me think of. There was a fellow in the Old Testament and most of his life he was called Jacob. But then there came a day when he wrestled with God. The Bible tells us about it in Genesis chapter number 3, how he wrestled with God all night. God touched the hollow of his thigh. And the Bible says that God changed Jacob's name that day, and he was no longer known as Jacob, listen now, but he was known as Israel. All throughout Israel's history, you know what they did? They wrestled with God, and God dealt with them, and God wallered, that's a good southern word, wallered with them trying to bring them to a place of obedience. You know, Hohem here, he kind of reminds me of Israel. He was the king over a place by the name of Hebron, which means association. So when I think of a group of people that are associated with God, that God is always wrestling with, I can't help but think about Israel. You know, one of the reasons Jesus came to the cross of Calvary was for the nation of Israel. You remember in Matthew 15, when there was a Syrophoenician woman that cried out to Jesus and wanted Jesus to heal her daughter. And the Bible says that Jesus answered and said... I am not sent but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Later on in Acts chapter number 5, Peter, testifying the Lord Jesus, said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a Savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You mark her down. Listen, He is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. But He came as the Messiah to Israel. and had, He had a distinct office and responsibility to the land of Israel. Then there's a fellow by the name of Piram. Piram or Piram. He ain't here so he can't correct me. Piram or Piram. And you know what his name means? It means wild. <laughs> and you say, preacher, what does that have to do with anything? Well, wild. Well, it sort of reminds me of a wild group of people that's been brought into the family of God by God's grace. You know that in the New Testament, in Romans chapter number 11, you still with me this morning? I, hey, listen, I've been in BBS all week. I'm just running on fumes. Don't lay down on me. Stay with me. You know, in Romans chapter number 11... Paul talking about God reconciling Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ. You know what he calls us Gentiles? He called us a wild olive tree. 
He says that as the wild olive tree, we've been grafted into the natural olive tree, meaning God's spiritual promises to Israel. And in Romans chapter number 9, he goes on a little further, and he says this, talking about uh, the salvation of God being extended. He said it was extended even unto us whom He hath called, not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, when I think about that man Purim that, that brought Joshua to that battle and to that battlefield, I think about the Gentiles. You know, Jesus came not just to die for the Jews, but also for us Gentiles as well. So I think about us Gentiles. And then there's a man uh, by the name of Yephia or Japhia. Uh, and his name means shining bright or bright shining light. He was the king of a place called Lachish, which meant invincible. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of, of, of an individual that is described as an invincible, bright, shining light, Brother Charlie, I think about God. I think about God the Father in particular. And I'm reminded that Jesus came to Calvary not because He was forced to, but because He wanted to. But He came because He was sent. Amen? I said He came because He was sent. The Bible says in John chapter 3, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know what Jesus said in John chapter number 8, verse 28? He looked around at the people and He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, so He's talking about Calvary, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things, and He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. You know why He went to Calvary? He went to Calvary to defeat the devil. He went to Calvary for the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. He went to Calvary for us Gentiles. But He also went to Calvary because it was the will of God. He prayed to his father in Gethsemane. And he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Which will was done, or what will was done, or how was that will expressed? It was the will of the Father, and it was expressed when he went to Calvary. So I think about the Father. And then one more thing, and we'll be done with the introduction. No, we're still not done with the introduction. So, uh, you know, I think of another thing that brought him there. There was a final king, and his name was Debir. Debir. And his name, you know what it means? It means sanctuary. Sanctuary. He was the king over a place by the name of Eglon. And the name Eglon means calf-like. So if I think of a place, Brother Fred, with, with calves and other, other various beasts of burden, and it's a place that is a sanctuary, I don't know about you, but I think about the Old Testament temple. You know, Brother Charlie, it makes me think of, it makes me think of the Old Testament temple and all those sacrifices that were given for all those years. You know, the Hebrew writer said this, that if the blood of bulls and goats could make someone perfect, they would have ceased to have been offered. But the Bible says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So you know what he did? He came in his own body and he gave his own self one sacrifice once for all. You know what I think about when I see this Debir fellow? I think about the holiness of God. You know why Jesus went to Calvary? He went to defeat the devil. He went for the nation of Israel. He went for the Gentiles. He went because God the Father told him to. But you know what he was doing there? He was reconciling a lost world to a transgressed or offended God. You know why he went? He went to pay the price that none of us could pay. We had trespassed the holiness of God. But he went in our place. You remember in Matthew 3.15 when he was being baptized, John didn't want to, John the Baptist didn't want to baptize him. He said, you ought to be baptizing me. And Jesus looks at him and he says this, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You know why? Because it was expected of Jesus, because it was proper for Jesus to do so. And so he says, I may not be a sinner and I may not have to repent, but in my, in my role and office as the, as the federal head of the Jewish nation, I am on behalf of Israel entering into this baptism. You know why? Because he was fulfilling the law. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, he said it pretty clearly. He looked at those around and said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He said, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know why I went to Calvary? He took that 33 and a half years of absolute, perfect, spotless, sinless life. And He laid that as a sacrifice before the God of glory that the wrath of God might be extinguished by the trespass, that, that the trespass of our sins that was against Him would not be laid upon us, but would be laid upon Him. He made intercession for the transgressors. He paid the price that day so that the holiness of God could be satisfied. So I think about his adversaries. And then I think about his ascent. Uh, the Bible says in verse number 9, Therefore Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. He came to the battle 
all night. It reminds me of Jesus who was up all night the night before He was crucified praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, interceding for us. And then I think about His advance. Man, this gets me excited. We may just have to just preach two sermons. This gets me excited. Verse number 10, look what the Bible says. And the Lord discomfited them. That means He defeated them. That means He beat them so bad that they just ran. That's what that means. The Lord discomfited them, the enemies, before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chase them along the way that goeth up, and there's three places mentioned, that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Azekah and unto Makeda. And you know, all these names are significant. Every one of them, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus' advance. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean the victory that He gives in the life of a person that comes unto Him by faith. For instance, that first place, Beth Hor, and any time you see a name with the word Beth in it, that, that term Beth means house. For instance, Bethlehem, right? Uh, the, the, uh, is, uh, is the house of bread. Uh, for instance, Bethel is the house of God. So when you find these Beth names, they mean house of something. You know what this one means? Man, I thought this was amazing. It means, Beth Hor, it means house of hollowness. Now wait a minute now, let me think about that for just a minute. House of hollow. Now, typically, we don't think of houses being hollow. You know, the Lord Jesus, He never owned a, to our knowledge, never owned a house. But there was one place that was distinctly described as being His through the Old Testament to the New Testament. But it wasn't a house, it was a tomb. <laughs> you know what a tomb is, Brookin? It is a hollow house. It is a place defined and delineated by its Hollowness. You know where the victory began in your life and mine? It began at an empty tomb. That's where the victory started. When we partook in His death and were raised spiritually to walk in newness of life. So it started at the, at the hollow house. And then they went to a place by the name of Azekah. Now, Azekah means a dug or tilled ground. So stop, hold on a minute. Let me think about this. So it, the victory began at the hollow house, which reminds me of the empty tomb. But then they went and they kept just whooping up on them. And you know where they got the victory? The place where the ground was tilled up and dug up. The place where seed, if it was sown, could be received and could grow and could have life. And I think about the New Testament when the Lord Jesus told a parable about a sower with seed. And He talked about that ground being equivalent to a person's heart. And He talked about that good ground being receptive heart to the Word of God. You know what it reminds me of? The victory that we have in our life. It begins at the empty tomb. But you know, it keeps going further, but only in as much. I'm not saying we, we are only saved if we obey God. Of course, we know we are eternally saved by grace and not by works. But I'm saying the victory is won in as much as our heart is tilled up, dug over, open and ready and receptive to the truth of God's precious Word. Then you know where they finally beat Him? So here, here's what I find. He caught the enemy at the hollow house. I find that, that he, he, he conquered the enemy at the tilled ground. But you know where he condemned the enemy? At a place by the name of Makeda. And you know what it means? It means the place of the shepherd or the place of the sheepfold. You know, it's a reminder of the Lord's victory in our life. You know how it happens? It begins at an empty tomb. And then, Brother Ken, it progresses further in as much as our heart is like freshly tilled ground where the Word of God can take root. And you know where God really gets victory in our life? You know where He really gets glory? You know where the devil really gets beat back? When we find ourselves in a right relationship with the shepherd, when we're in the fold where we belong, and the shepherd has the lead and guidance and governance of our life. Now, those are just some of the things that make me think about Jesus when I read this passage. But we've still yet to talk about what really took place that day. What was it that made that day different than every other day? And I think about the Lord Jesus at Calvary and how that day... You know, you can compare, you can contrast, and we'll do a little bit of both. But I find four things that made that a remarkable day. And I'm just going to read them off to you and then we'll be done this morning. You know, the first thing I noticed that made that day a day like unlike any other, it was a day, listen now, when punishment was discriminately administered. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, look back at verse 11. There's a miracle that happens before we even notice the miracle that happens. I mean, before we even talk about the sun and moon standing still, we have to talk about the first miracle. And it's back in verse 11. It says, It came to pass, as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah. And they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. 
What an amazing miracle. On that day, when the battle was hot, the Bible says that the Lord threw great stones from heaven to slay those Amorite armies. But you know what's amazing to me? There's another miracle we'll miss. I remember I was sharing this a little bit this, this past week in the adult class in VBS. You know, every once in a while somebody will try to use science to explain away the miraculous nature of the Word of God, and they always wind up just looking foolish. And uh, for a few years ago, there was people that came out and, and they said that uh, when the Bible talks about the parting of the Red Sea, uh, that it wasn't talking, that, that was a mistranslation. And immediately when people say the Bible's not the Word of God, I immediately get my back up. Right? Uh, either that or I just plug my ears. I ain't interested in that nonsense. Uh, and, and, but they said it was a mistranslation. It should have said Reed Sea. And that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea at a place of, of a marshy land with lots of reeds there. And that that's how they went across and that's how they survived. And the rest is just poetic language. And my pastor, I remember him saying this, that in doing so, they ascribed a greater miracle to God than even God claimed to Himself. You know what the greater miracle was? How, how, how did God drown all of Pharaoh's army in ankle-deep water? Well, you know, in the same way, you know what's remarkable about this miracle? Not just that hailstones came down from heaven. And there might be secularists that would look at that and say, well, that could have been, you know, a meteor shower or any number of things could have happened and we can explain that. Here's the greater miracle. It's not who those hailstones killed. It's who they didn't kill. God sent those things down like mortar fire from heaven. But they did not kill everyone, Brother Ken. They only killed the enemies of God. What a remarkable miracle. It was a day when God punished the unrighteous, but He did so in such a way that the the righteous were spared, but the unrighteous were destroyed. That's what I find. I find a day when the covenant people of God were spared and the corrupt people were slain. You say, preacher, that's interesting and everything, but what does that have to do with Calvary? Well, don't you recognize Calvary was the exact same thing, just flipped around. You see, on Calvary... It wasn't, the, it wasn't the people that deserved uh, to be spared that were spared. And it wasn't the ones that deserved to be punished that were punished. There was discriminate punishment meted out. God only punished some at Calvary, but He didn't punish others. But in Joshua's day, He punished those that deserve it and spared those that didn't. But on Calvary, He punished Him who did not deserve it and spared those of us that certainly did deserve the punishment of God. Peter says it this way. I love this. One of my favorite verses. Verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You know the great miracle at Calvary was not that God's punishment was poured out. It was who it was poured out upon. God was always going to judge the unrighteous, but on that day He did not judge the unrighteous. He judged the righteous as unrighteous, so that us unrighteous ones could go free. By the grace of God. Man, what an incredible day. And then I see a second thing that was incredible. And the Bible even sort of says this explicitly. Look back at verse 12 of our text. It says, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. Now, Understand here, he's not ta- he, is, he is figuratively speaking to the Son. He is commanding the Son. But the Bible says very clearly, it wasn't really the Son He was talking to. He was talking to the Lord. And He was asking the Lord to stop the Sun and to stop the moon. Some of y'all amateur astrologists out there are getting ready to say, but preacher, it's not the Sun that moves, it's the earth. We're going to get there. Don't get nervous. But you know what I find remarkable here? Look at verse number 14. It tells us. There was no day like that before it or after it. And what was, what was remarkable about that? It was, it was a day that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. It was a day not only when punishment was discriminately administered, but it was a day when prayer, Brother Ken, was divinely answered. What was so amazing about that day was not that the sun stood still. It was not that the moon stood still. It was not that hailstones fell from heaven. What was amazing about that day was that a man looked up towards heaven and asked God to change the very course of nature. And God answered. 
This had never happened before. In fact, the first thing I see here that I'll say about it is we see the unprecedented prayer of Joshua. Nobody had ever asked for anything like this before. Now, there are several, by the way, miracles as regard the heavenly and, and celestial bodies throughout Scripture. There's times that God rolled the sundial back. There's times that God caused it to be dark prematurely. And then here, there's a case where God prolonged the, uh, the brightness of the sun or the, the, the uh, day so that they would have enough time to destroy their enemies. But really, what's amazing to me, what, what do you think made Joshua pray that? I like to think I've been bold in my prayer life. I've asked for some big things from God. I've asked for some foolish things from God. But I've got to be honest, I don't know if I'd have nerve enough. I just don't. I mean, you, may, you might have more faith than me, but I don't think I would have nerve enough to look up at God and say, God, stop the sun and stop the moon. This was an unprecedented prayer. But God answered it. And God marks it down in the record of Scripture as saying, there was never before it or after it a prayer like that that was prayed that was answered because it was a remarkable prayer. It was an unprecedented prayer. But you know, I find there was... There, there, Brother Fred, there was never a prayer exactly like that before it or after it. But there was a bigger prayer that has been prayed. You remember when Christ was hanging on the cross of Calvary? And He asked for something bigger than the sun standing still. I mean, it didn't take any effort for God to make the sun stand still. It didn't take any effort for God to make the moon uh, stop in its course. It, it really, I mean, it was an amazing thing to us, Brother Ken, but to God, that was no big deal. God had spoke all this in existence. But you know, Jesus asked for something on Calvary that took the very sacrifice and effort of God. In fact, it took the greatest pain that God could ever experience. You remember Jesus looked down at the people crucifying Him. And think about this. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, it's a big thing to ask the sun to stand still. It's a bigger thing to ask the Son of God to leave the glories of heaven and to go to the cross of Calvary to be spit upon and beaten and mocked and scourged and to be nailed to a cross. It's a bigger thing for God to say, I will take all that sin from all of human history and I will lay it upon the shoulders of my darling, precious Son. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them! It required God, the Son, to leave His throne and to be robed in flesh. Hey, I see an unprecedented prayer of Joshua and his day, but then I see the unparalleled prayer of Jesus. Nothing greater has ever occurred than when Jesus prayed that prayer. And you know what happened? God answered. You know what the Hebrews writer says about that? The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 5, verse number 5, So also Christ glorified Himself not to be made in high priest, but He that said unto Him, Thou art My Son, today have I begotten Thee. As He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says about Jesus, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death, and was heard in that He feared. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, he was praying in, in, that, that in as much as he wanted to be saved from death. No, that's not what it says. It says he prayed unto him that could save him from death. But we know what he prayed for on Calvary. Because Luke chapter number 23 tells us that he prayed, Father, forgive them. What an amazing prayer that was answered on that day. You and I are born again because Jesus prayed that prayer. You, I said, you and I are born again. Hey, somebody ought to get excited about being born again. You and I are born again because he prayed that prayer. I don't know about you, but listen, it'd be a big deal if you could stop the sun or moon for me. But I sure enough need a Savior far more than I need a spectacle. And I'm glad that He died in my place. And I'm glad He prayed that prayer. So it was a day when prayer was, was divinely answered. And then I, I noticed it was a day when power was distinctly affirmed. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, one of the remarkable things, and I guess we'll go ahead and say a word about it, one of the remarkable things is that no one had ever, or God had not heretofore ever done such a thing as to stop. Now, let's go ahead and just real quick... I, I ain't going to dwell on it, but let's just go ahead and deal with... Uh, people say, well, preacher, that's impossible. Listen, if you believe that's impossible, go ahead and throw your Bible away. It is no more impossible than any other miracle that God performed. He would not be much of a God if He was beholden to the laws of the creation that He created. I think as the Creator, He has both the authority and the ability uh, to stop the sun and the moon if He chooses to do so. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, the sun does not move. It is the moon that moves and the sun that moves. That's true. But you know, even we talk like that, Brother Ken. Uh, this morning, probably, I don't know what time, 6.30, 6.45, something like that, we had an event, we have it every day, that we call Sunrise. This past year, we had a sunrise service. 
Now, you and I have both learned in basic science class that the sun don't rise. It's the earth moving, but we call it sunrise. Long about, I don't know, like midnight tonight, it feels summer, <laughs> we'll have another event. We call. I don't think there's anything wrong with Joshua saying, sun stands still, given the fact that the sun itself does not move. I think what he was saying is this, there is a course that it's traveling in the sky, and I want it to stay right where it's at and to not move. Now, you say God couldn't do that and throw everything into chaos. Do you think if God can't change the cause, or do you think if God can change the cause, Brother Ken, that He can't change the secondary effects? I mean, you think if He has the power to stop the course of the earth or the course of the moon, that He doesn't have the ability to suspend the gravitational laws uh, that keep things in place? You think He doesn't have the ability to do I'm just saying this to you. He wouldn't be much of a God if He couldn't do that. He would have created a world that He was not master of. So you say, but preacher, what about gravity? And what about the celestial bodies? And what about this and that? And I say, what about God? He's God. He can do as He pleases. If you want to just simply dismiss and tear everything miraculous out of your Bible, that's between you and God. You'll answer for it one day. But there's no reason to believe if He could part the Red Sea. There's no reason to believe if He could create this world. There's no reason to believe if He could do all that He did that He couldn't stop the sun and the moon, or he couldn't stop the course of the earth and suspend the progress of the sun. It was a remarkable thing. I noticed what was restrained on Joshua's day. It was the sun. But then I can't help but think there was something bigger that happened the day that Jesus died. I noticed what was restrained in Joshua's day when the sun was detained. But then I noticed what was revealed at Jesus' death when the sun was darkened. You know, another miracle took place as regards the sun. And in some ways, I, I, I think, Brother Larry, it was a bigger miracle. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, it's one thing for God to merely slow down the gravitational forces to such a degree that the sun does not set. But you know, the Bible says in Luke chapter number 23 that whenever Jesus hung upon the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness. And now Matthew tells us there was darkness in the land, but, but Luke goes a little further and he tells us there was darkness over the whole face of of the earth. Hey, listen, it's one it's one thing. Listen, it's one thing to bind the sun. But Ken, it's another thing to blot out the sun. That was a remarkable miracle. But you know what was more remarkable than that? The miracle in Joshua's day was done for the benefit of the miracle. But the miracles that took place at Calvary were different than any other miracles in the Word of God. You know why? They were not miracles for the purpose of a miracle. Rather, they were earthly manifestations of heavenly truths. So what do you mean? Well, for instance, the temple veil rent. Why did it do that? Because the veil in heaven rent. Thank God the veil in heaven rent. The way was made into the holiest. That's what the Hebrews writer says. The Bible says that the graves of Old Testament saints were opened up and they rose and, and they walked through the city of Jerusalem for three days after the death of Jesus. You say, that's amazing. Listen, it's just a, it's just a, a, a testimony of the fact that Jesus had descended into the lower parts of the earth, led captivity captive and took those Old Testament, Old Testament saints on high and they were bearing witness of that. So all of these miracles, listen now, at Calvary were, were just manifestations of divine truths. And you say, but preacher, the sun blotted out. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know why that is? Because the very Son of Righteousness, the Father of Lights, James calls Him, turned His back on this world and on His Son. You remember what Jesus said? He said, see, in Joshua's day, the sun standing still was a sign that God was with Israel. But in Jesus' day, the sun darkening was a sign that God had turned His back on His Son. Jesus cried on the cross and He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I would say this to you, that a greater miracle took place when the very Son of God was abandoned and forsaken to God's wrath and judgment. He was forsaken so we would not be. That was a greater miracle. That was a greater expression of the power of God than it was that God restrained the sun. But then I notice a final thing, and I'm just going to mention this. I ain't even going to preach it. You've heard that before, haven't you? It was a day, listen now, when peace was definitively acquired. When the children of Israel conquered the land of Canaan, there were really three major campaigns. First thing they did is they spearheaded right into the center of the land of Canaan and took Jericho and Ai. This was strategic in nature because they knew they had to divide the land of Canaan. Otherwise, the Canaanites would all group together and whoop them. Uh, and so they, they defeated those middle kingdoms. And then later on there was a northern campaign where they sort of cleaned things up and went to all the hill country and, and, and stomped out all of those people. But this was part of the southern campaign. 
And while the children of Israel did not exactly obey the Lord and retain all of the land that they had conquered through the rest of their history, we know that at least for generation after generation, the southern part of Israel was held firmly in the hand of the people of Israel. So in other words, on this day, the peace was won. There was a political peace for the kin that was accomplished that day because of the great victory that was wrought. Later on in the chapter, I think it's down about verse number 23, the Bible says that after that day, nobody moved a tongue against Joshua. In other words, nobody so much as criticized Joshua after that day because they feared him and the peace was won. But you know, there's a greater peace that was won. If you fast forward through human history to that dark day on Calvary's hill, there was a greater peace that was won on that day. It wasn't peace for Gibeon. It was peace with God that was produced through the death of Christ on Calvary. The Bible says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that we enjoy through being a child of God. We've been reconciled. Romans chapter 5, verse number 10 says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And Colossians chapter 1 lays it out pretty clear in verse 20. It says about Jesus having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, you say, who's that? Well, that's you, it's me. You, sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. You say, preacher, what does that tell you? It tells me this, that through the cross of Calvary, peace, peace has been won for every person that will come and make peace with the God of glory. You know, peace in your heart, peace in your life is available to you. But it's not just a temporal peace, and it's not just a political peace, but it's a spiritual peace. It's an eternal peace. That we, It's a greater peace than what was won on that day, was won on the day that Jesus died for your sin. I wonder if you know that peace. I wonder if you're walking and living in that peace. If you're a child of God, I wonder if you've let something rob you of that peace. If you have, can I tell you this? Our Joshua who we call Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, He's still victorious today. He's still victorious today. And He still extends peace to those that will come unto Him. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open and you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. I I trust that the Holy Spirit will make application of these things in your heart and life. And if He's dealt with you this morning, won't you come find a place at this altar? And why don't you come deal with Him? He, He wouldn't deal with you for no reason. So why don't you find a place down here and deal with Him? Father, I love you and thank you for this time you've given us. I pray you'd bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Miss Melissa's going to play as soon as she's ready. What about you this morning? Can you say without any shadow of a doubt that you know this Jesus Christ that I've preached about? You know Him as your Savior. You know Him as your God and your Lord. You've put your faith in Him and you have put the responsibility of your eternal destiny in Him. And can you say without a shadow of a doubt, I know He's my God. I know He's my Savior. I know I am a child of God. Can you say that definitively? Listen, if you can't say that, If you can't say that you know that you're saved, but you'd like to know how or you'd like to be saved, slip your hand up where you're at and I'll pray for you. Is there anybody that say, Preacher, I don't believe I'm saved, but I would like to be. Slip your hand up right where you're at. I'll pray for you. Now, there might be somebody in here that you've let the world rob you of your peace. You've let the devil in the flesh rob you of your peace. You've let sin rob you of your peace. Why don't you come and make peace with Him once again around the fellowship of His righteousness? predicated and based upon what He did for you. I ain't talking about getting re-saved. I'm just talking about getting close to Him. I'm talking about getting sin out of your life, dealing with it, confessing it, asking His forgiveness, asking His cleansing for it. And we can enjoy that sweet peace that He grants to all those that come unto Him by faith.